Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, August the 29th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. It's an odd sort of uh, group of lessons today, to be honest with you. The first lesson is from the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. We very rarely use the Song of Solomon on Sunday mornings. it's, It's odd to see it in that place, and there's not much to comment on in that one. So what I'm going to do is at the outset of, of the actual thing, I'm going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to read it to you more than more than to comment on it. Um, but anyway, we've had a good week. It's been a busy week. We went over to uh, Raleigh and um, visited with a guy named Tim Anderson, who who has a business there called Original Strength, and it's it's an interesting um, premise for building strength, and and it and it's a good program, I think, for any body actually uh, because it, it's building functional strength and it begins from the ground up literally the the original part of it is called pressing reset and you, you begin on the ground doing things like crawling and rolling and breathing uh, because it all starts with breathing and, and Tim wonderful guy we had a wonderful time with him solid Christian loves Jesus and uh, actually he prayed and asked the Lord to show him how he might move from and transition from the the job that he had before to something new, and the Lord gave him this thing, and now he's gone all over the world teaching it. And so we were we were truly blessed to spend uh, about an hour and a half, two hours with with Tim this week. So we Will and I went over there, just the two of us, and had a good time, a really good time. We, we want to uh, say though, right at the outset here, that that we need to be in prayer for the families of the um, people who died in Afghanistan on um wednesday thursday thursday um uh, in the bombings there and, and pray for the people of afghanistan the lord's really put a burden on my heart for the people of afghanistan it's it's been a war-torn country forever and ever and ever and and it they need jesus what needs to happen is revival needs to happen in afghanistan and so I, i'm just really burdened for the people of Afghanistan. I can't imagine what it would be like to live the way that they do and to live with this constant threat of war always on you and a constant threat of some foreign power always being there or strife within and civil war between the Taliban and the the regular army and then ISIS thrown into the mix. It's just there's just, it's just too much to imagine living a life that's bounded every moment of every day by that kind of strife and and what would have to be this this high level of fear all the time. Those of us who grew up during the Cold War knew that there was always this sort of low level of concern over what might happen next. But but that pales in comparison to what what the people of Afghanistan live with and live under. And so I'm just really praying for something to happen in Afghanistan. And I don't know at this point how that's even going to happen because the the caliphate is not open to the testimony of Jesus. And so, but, but I ask your prayers today for the people of Afghanistan, as well as for the the families of all those who died and, and those who were injured in that blast, and, and the, the families of all those who are stuck there and have been so far unable to get out. And I just pray that the Lord will find a way for them to get out. And so, and I pray for all those who fought 
in Afghanistan and, and who uh, suffered one way or another, whether physically or mentally, because of that. And so I just ask your prayers for those people. I, and I have many friends who, who did fight there and, and who have continued to have a long-term sort of presence in one way or another there. Um, and that's all I really can say about that. But anyway, um, just deeply, deeply troubled about what's going on and, and what has happened there. And so just, just again, asking for your prayers for all those people. And also, as I, as I tape this, those who are in the path of the hurricane that's coming in through the Gulf Coast, um, and, and pray, pray that, that somehow or another that that thing will diminish before it hits, makes landfall. But anyway, those are the, so those are the, the concerns that I've got in my mind right now. And so it's, um, um, an interesting, in a bad way, time, I think, in, in America and in the world at large. And so to get back to it, to this, this passage from Song of Solomon, this is, this is the, the, the way that we should feel about Jesus, and it's the way that we should feel about how we approach the Word of God. So just listen with me on this. The voice of my beloved, and there's an exclamation part there, point there, so it reads more like, the voice of my beloved... And there's just an enthusiasm and a, um, a, a deep, deep feeling of what joy it is to hear the voice of the beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear upon the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of turtle dove is heard in the land, the fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And that's the call of Jesus to us. And he's calling us not to come away in the sense of, oh, I got to have a retreat. No, he's calling us to come away from the things that I just talked about. At least for this period of time, he's asking us to set those things aside and to come with him and to worship him and just to be with him, to be in his presence. It's the, the love of Christ that calls us to himself, that calls us to the love affair, that, that is our promise, that we, we are called to be part of the bride, the, the church, and that this call is... He's pointing us towards something better than what we're experiencing at present. He's pointing us above all this to something else, to, to a glorious vision of what will be. And so it's not escapism. It, what it is, is it is pointing us to that glorious future, but in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the struggle, we're also pointed in that same direction because he's here with us in all of that. And not only that, he's given us brothers and sisters in Christ that we can share this with as well. And so these, these oases in the middle of the storm and the strife of life are, are gifts from God. They're gifts that we, we've been given of places and times when we can worship, when we can fellowship, we, when we can share and break bread with one another. And those are the important times. And those are the, the times of refreshing that he promises us. But he calls us on this upward path to something new and something different. And we are also to be that path ourselves. We are to be that solace, that comfort, that peace to the world. 
And so we're called not only to experience this peace, this joy, this garden with him, we're called to be that, to cultivate that, to be the place where people can come for refreshing. And and that's our job and our goal in this life. It's so to worship him and be like him that, that we become people, that people can come to and escape because they see something different in us, and they, they can seek after the peace that we have. That's the real definition of peace, right? It's, it's not the absence of conflict. It's this inner attitude of um, the full dependence that we have on him and the knowledge that he's sovereign over all things. And so in the midst of the storm and the strife of life, we can have that peace. And then that becomes the thing, because it's the peace that passes understanding, because it comes from above. And then then we become people of peace. And then we become people other people marvel at and wonder at. And that's who we need to be in this time. The world needs us to be people who drink deeply of this relationship and drink deeply of the peace of God and the love of God in order that, that we might be shining beacons of light in a world, beckoning others to what it is that, that makes us different, makes us sure and secure. And so I encourage you to, to um, pull that passage out right there, actually, and, sp- and spend time meditating on that during this coming week. Um, I heard Larry Crabb one time over at the Cove here in Asheville at the Billy Graham Training Center and heard him speaking about three passages, and one of those passages was actually the book of the Song of Solomon. Job was one of them as well. And, and, and he had us read the book of Song of Solomon during one break in the, in the weekend and, and said, you know, when we came back, he said, did anything stick out to you in this thing? And I happened to be sitting in the front row, and I had happened to actually have had some conversation with him um, the day before. And he said, John, what about you? I said, there's this thing that stuck out to me that that kind of appeared over and over in the text, and that is that don't awaken love before it's time. And so some of y'all may be in a place right now where where you're not ready for that peace. You're not ready to be awakened and to call deeper into that relationship, but but it will happen. It will come as long as you continue to persevere in Him. And, and it's, it, it's not always time. And, and we need to remember that when we talk to other people, when we, when we share with other people. It, it, just, it, it doesn't mean that we failed. It just means that, that the Lord hadn't done the work of preparing that person yet for that intimate encounter with Him. So it's not that you've failed, it's that the time is not yet right, but all those things accumulate, all those sharings accumulate over time. And so you've not wasted it in vain, you've not thrown pearls before swine, it's always too soon to say that. And so I I just want you to bear that in mind as we go forward with this. What you're experiencing may not be what somebody else is ready for yet. They may not even remotely be prepared. They may think that you're a little bit loony and that you're an escapist. But but the reality is God's preparing the ground of their heart. I'm always certain of that. And so don't take that rejection personally. Take it for exactly the way it is. So... I want to look next at the gospel, which is Mark 7, 1 to 23. And so the Pharisees gathered to him, and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. 
That is, they were unwashed. And what does it mean to be defiled, right? And so that's what we're going to see. There's a parenthetical here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. That and so what Mark's telling us here is is that, that you all, if you're Gentiles, you may not have any idea what I'm talking about here, and you may not know why this is such a big deal suddenly, that they're coming to him and saying, hey, some of your disciples uh, eat with defiled hands. And, and he goes on to say that is unwashed. And so what they see is that you can track defilement whenever you enter into the world that you're defiled by the world, that in some ways that you can go and do these things in the world, you can go do your shopping and all that kind of stuff, but there's, there's sort of this, this fear ultimately of that and, and, and a sense of superiority as well that comes along with it that says that I was holy until I went out the hair. And a lot of Christians feel that way, right? And it's just, I can remember this wonderful uh, thing Francis Chan did a few years ago where he stands on this tiny little balance beam that's about three or four inches off the floor and he says this is how too many Christians live I'm going to live in my own little enclave and I'm going to send my kids to Christian schools and I'm never going to actually go out into the community and I'm not going to go out among those unchristian people because that oh no I can't do that and, and he says then at the end of their lives having lived the safest possible life then they they jump off this two inch high balance beam, throw their hands in the air and their head back, and, and think God's proud of them, and and that fits perfectly this scenario here. I mean, what you need to understand is is that 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 hand washing was so important. There were multiple tractates in in the Gemara and and in the Talmud that are that are set aside just for hand washing. There, you have to wash your hands specifically before eating a meal containing bread, but it only applies to bread made from one of the five chief grains, wheat, cultivated barley, spelt, wild barley, and oats. So you always have to know, okay, so what's that made out of? If that's made of those things, then, then I have to wash my hands. If not, I can wash my hands without it. And that's remember when they crushed the grain in their hand, that that would have applied here when they were going through. And they said, you know, you're eating and you're working on the Sabbath because they had to crush the head of grain, which would require, what, about two foot pounds of pressure in your hand. But that, that's a problem. And now it's a problem that, oh, they, not only do they do that, they also eat with, with hands that were unwashed. They were clearly defiled by contact with non-Jews. And so it's it's a serious problem. And, and this whole hand-washing thing, I mean, it's just like you put OCD ch- people in charge of everything because there's all kinds of stuff like this. There's an argument that washing before meals is so important that neglecting it is tantamount to unchastity and risks divine punishment in the form of sudden destruction of property. Rabbinic law required that travelers go as far as four biblical miles to obtain water for washing prior to eating bread if there's a known water source in that distance. It applies only, however, when the water source lies in one's direction of travel. However, had he already passed the water source, he's only obligated to backtrack to a distance of one biblical mile. There's another practice to wash hands after a meal before reciting uh, the prayer after the meal. And that and that practice, the purpose was the washing is motivated by health concerns to remove, quote, the salt of Sodom, which may have been served at the meal, because salt that originated from Sodom allegedly caused blindness, should it be on one's fingers and they happen to touch the eyes. 
it's the and the explanation for that is actually actually more um, palatable, let's say. Um, and what it means by that is the salt of Sodom. It, what it had to do with what was is that there was it was a place that became a symbol for selfishness and indifference to others, and so that salt could blind the eyes to the needs of others, but it's rendered harmless through the purifying ritual of washing. There, there's also a million other kinds of things there's if if you ate a piece of food other than fruit that had been dipped in some other liquid that then clings to that piece um then you had to wash your hands and so there's this there's there's a million different things where they were they were supposed to do this and still are actually i mean it's not like that these things have gone away um for those who are truly orthodox and truly observant then then they would still be bound by these same sorts of, of restrictions and regulations. And so, and the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, it's all well and good for Jesus to say that, and you and I can look and go, yeah, well, of course that's true. But, I mean, I, I, I was in the Anglican world. And those traditions can be, uh, there's a lot of traditions in the Anglican world. I mean, I had somebody get upset one time because the, the head of the altar guild chose um, natural candles rather than those that were white. Uh, I, there are people who get upset about what the priest wears or what the priest doesn't wear. There are people who get upset about the color of the hangings on the altar at different times. Of the, I mean, there's no end to the things that can be problematic in the church. But but here it's even higher than that, because what they see is the oral tradition, they believe, was also given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and so it is on par with the Torah as far as their obligation to keep it. That's where you get these 613 commandments. Those 613 commandments are part of the oral law, and, and there is binding as the the written law. But it requires a lot of interpretation, and so there, there, there's tractate upon tractate written, and, and rabbis can differ about the applications of these things, but, but it's an important thing. So when Jesus says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, that can be incredibly offensive to the people he's speaking with here, because they don't see the difference between those two things. When Jesus calls them the traditions of men, then what he's stepping on is the oral law which, like I said, they, they believe was given at Mount Sinai, and therefore it's as binding as the Torah. So it, it, Jesus is making a strong statement here. But, but all of this that we're going to read in this gospel lesson today kind of comes down to one thing, and that is, is that, that you're not defiled by contact with the world. You're defiled internally. So that's what Jesus' main point there is. And, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his mother or father, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. So by the time of the second temple, which is when, when Jesus lived. By the time of the second temple, that Corban had, had sort of morphed in, in the way that it was interpreted 
a korban had initially just meant the offering or a sacrifice. But by the second temple period, what it meant was that somebody had taken a vow to the Lord, which is to say that I've already promised this to God. I took a vow that I would do such and such, and because I took that vow, even though you're in need, I, I, I won't give it to you. And, and it's the stuff, what Jesus is saying here fits along with the, all the prophets who talk about that, that God desires obedience more than sacrifice. This, he, he prefers mercy and justice more than sacrifice. It's not to make light of the sacrificial system, but it's to say that, that the sacrificial system is, is an outworking of everything else. That, that those other things, the things that are in the heart, the regeneration of the heart, is what truly matters. And so that other stuff, if you bring that sacrifice when you could have done and loved your mother and father or your neighbor or whatever, if they had need of that, and you say, no, 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 I, I promised to give this to the Lord, then, then what he's saying is, is that you've got it all backwards. God would greatly prefer mercy and justice and obedience and obedience to the commandment, first to love your mother and father. And so, so what he's doing here, I mean, it's just nothing different than the prophets have said all along. Jesus is not a new teaching in any shape, form, or fashion, but, but what they're saying is my obligation to God is higher than my obligation even to my mother and father. And, and what's odd is, is that the teaching, and, and this goes along with that Sodom thing I mentioned a minute ago, the, the teaching that they have is, is the belief is, is that when the Lord, when the three men appear to uh, Abraham in the wilderness, and then they go to Sodom, before that, what they see is the Lord had appeared to Moses, to Abraham first. And, and, and the, the belief is that this is right after his circumcision. So they believe that he's visiting Abraham, checking on him after, the, after his circumcision, see how his, um, his recovery is going. And, and then these three men come up, and, and Moses leaves the Lord. Go back and read that passage. It, that He goes back and leaves the Lord and goes to those men, and what they say and what they teach is, is that, that he actually did the right thing that his obligation to these travelers actually supersedes his obligation to spend time with the Lord. And so Jesus would have been teaching exactly in this what their own sages taught. And so he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Don't worry about contact with the world defiling you, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And that's when Mark says, thus, he declared all foods clean. Now, nobody would have seen that at that time. Nobody would have thought that that's what Jesus had done. But in retrospect, remember when Peter in Acts 10 is told to go and kill and eat, and God says that don't call things unclean that I've said are clean. This, this would have been Mark, who's writing the gospel Peter would have written, because he was Mark's disciple. He, he was Peter's disciple. Then His reflection on this is, is, wait a minute, even back here, Jesus declared that. We just didn't see it at the time. And he said, Jesus did, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. 
So in other words, what we need to do is make sure that we got the inside of the cup clean, that we're, we're, the, we're not the hypocrites that he calls the Pharisees and the scribes in the beginning of this thing, because what he's basically saying to them is, is that you're playing a role. That's what a hypocrite is. It's somebody who's playing a role other than who they really are. It's putting on a mask. And what he's saying is, is, is what he says again and again, which is that, that on the outside, you look fine. Everybody applauds what you look like on the outside, but I know who you are on the inside, and it's exactly the same thing that, that God said to Samuel when he went to um, anoint one of the sons of Jesse, is stop looking at things the way men look at things. Stop judging by outward appearances. God sees to the heart. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I know what's in your heart. I know what's there. And he's exposing all of this. There's, there, there's huge envy going on here because the people are following Jesus. And we know that ultimately murder is what happens. They decide they're going to murder Jesus. They put a legal veneer on it with the trial, the show trial, actually, the kangaroo court. But that's what's there. Their hatred becomes murder. And so he says that all that stuff comes from within. You know, The food that you eat, no, that's not going to defile you. Now, the, the disciples later, the apostles in Acts 15, decide that one of the things they have to do is they have to abstain from food that's been sacrificed to idols. Not that it would defile the person necessarily, but because you're participating in idol worship when you do that. And so there, you, you can't mix that chalice. You can't take that in because there, there's a part of it that's spiritual that, that comes in when you do that. And, and that's an important principle. We can't participate in the worship of idols, and nor should we. And if we know that someone has sacrificed something to an idol before they sell it to us or whatever, or whether, whether we're, we're at a meal with them, that, then we can't partake of those things because it, it, it supports a belief that's false. So it's important that, that we recognize that our heart is the problem. That's what Jesus is saying. That that because he says the food doesn't go into the heart; it goes into the stomach and then is expelled. And, and what we need to remember is that the other stuff that we take in, the, the stuff that we allow, the stuff that we don't deal with, the hatred. And, the, and this week, man, it's been really hard for that, right? With all the stuff that went on in Afghanistan, it's hard not to be angry, and it's hard not to hate. And that's the part of the reason I'm asking you to pray for—I'm I'm really going to have to say it two ways. I'm going to have to pray for the people of Afghanistan and pray for our leadership. No matter what you think of that leadership, no matter how badly you think they might have failed, pray for the leadership of this country. They're the ones that God has set in place and, and has is set there or allowed there, and we need to be praying for them. It's important that we not lose sight of that, that we not allow that anger and that bitterness— to run riot in our lives and to take control. We've got to, to, to say no to that. It's important that we say no to that. In the uh, passage from James today, we got James 1, 17 to 27. And, you know, a lot of people don't like James because James talks about works. Well, James is not talking about works separate from faith, nor did Jesus ever separate faith and works. He would say, blessed the one who believes and does. Jesus said it again and again and again. There's never a time when Jesus said, if you pray a sinner's prayer, then you're good to go. No, he's always talking about living it out. In fact, in in these lessons, we've just seen that about helping your father and mother when they need it. 
it's always not just based in praying some sinner's prayer and saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and, and now I'm saved and I'm good to go. No, 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 no. It's always you forget sanctification. You're not justified just by doing that. You, you've got to go. It's got to change your life. It's got to be regeneration of the heart. I'm not saying that that, 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 that recognition and belief doesn't justify you. I, I'm just saying Jesus says demons believe that, right? And so we can't just believe it. There's no such thing as easy believism. No, the, you've got to take that next step. That's got to become a new life and a new creation. And so when James says every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation of, or shadow due to change. So the, the, everything good comes from him, and, and he is unchangeable. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. So we are to be the new creation. We are to be the kingdom of God revealed in us and through us to the world, is what he's saying. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some of you may experience that this week, that your anger over what happened mm, didn't produce righteousness of God. The things that came out of your mouth might not have been pleasing, might have been something, in fact, that we need to repent over and, and might expose something that's actually in our hearts that needs to be dealt with as well. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And this meekness that he's talking about, the, the way that word is used, it's funny because Jordan Peterson has tried to sort of redefine it lately. Y'all, you know, if you listen to me at all, you know that I actually like Jordan Peterson, but he's trying to redefine this word meekness. It's, it's somebody who has power but fails to use that power and chooses not to use that power. That would be Jesus' kind of meekness. But here, it's the, it's the meekness that, that comes from recognizing who we are and who God is, recognizing God's greatness, and believing in his goodness, because we've seen it. And so it's receiving it without um, argumentation, being quick to receive correction from the Holy Spirit. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Because that reinforces the truth. Acting on it reinforces the truth not only in my life, but to those around me as well. They see that I, I don't just believe it in my mind and in my heart, but that it informs my life as well. And those two things working together, it, it'd be like trying to crawl and, and not using your legs or trying to crawl and not use your arms, that, that your body's not working the way it's intended to work if you're not using everything in the proper way. He said, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, has no value, no value at all. If it doesn't change who you are and the way that you speak to others, then he says, your religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled. Here we go back to that defiled thing again, because remember, that's what the Pharisees says they ate with defiled hands. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We keep oneself 
ourselves unstained from the world, not by failing to interact with the world, but but by failing to become like the world and allowing it to shape us. And that's what Paul's talking about when he when he says, "Go for transformation," which begins with a renewing of the mind. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to transform your mind. And then your mind will determine how you act. What you truly believe will be the way you live. Those two things can't be separated from one another. And so I point you back to this one place, the voice of my beloved. Lose yourself in him. Find him to be your chief joy in life. And if you've lost your first love, go back and read the Song of Solomon and read it as as though Jesus is the beloved to whom that's addressed. Because only he is worthy. And he is more than worthy. And your beloved went to a cross as a sinner, but never having sinned. He took your sin, your death, on himself. And in exchange, he gave you life. That's the most important exchange that's ever taken place in the history of humankind. And he did it in love for you. And he calls you to live in love with him. Thank you. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I appreciate so much you being along for this ride with me. Oh, my God.